Hello, and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather. I'm with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, and today I've got my super special guest, my favorite guest of all time. That's right. You're going to hear from Bob again today, my husband. Hello. <laughs> and you may hear a bunch of background noise today. So Bob and I are actually traveling. So our, our day job and our, our nine to five, or if you will, is far from nine to five. But we actually travel for work. We work on airplanes. Um, and so we travel the country coast to coast and we are on the road quite a bit. And today we are staying at a hotel in Joplin, Missouri. And our hotel is under renovations, so in the background you may hear a whole lot of construction type noises, so I apologize in advance, but unfortunately there's not a thing we can do about that, because we tested the audio in the van, and I assure you it is far worse. (laughs) But today we're going to take a deeper dive into exactly what permaculture means to us. And so permaculture in general... It's a holistic system designed for sustainability and food production. It's the art of joining humans, plants, animals, and the earth to create a really well-balanced ecosystem that's mutually beneficial to all of those things. Because in an environment where we have been super concerned about making sure everything is ideal and beneficial for us as humans, we've done a lot of bad things to our environment. There are entire islands floating in the ocean made of wasted plastic material. We have, I mean, I, I grew up in, a, in an era where we heard constantly about, you know, the, the little plastic pop rings or soda rings that are on six packs of soda and how we when those get washed into the ocean, the sea turtles would die. And so, I mean, as a little kid, even, I would, you know, make sure to go and snip all of those little plastic things. But I didn't know at that time, I, it never occurred to me that instead of just snipping those plastic rings, why don't I put those in the recycle bin and let those turn into something else another day and give it another life? So it's little tiny changes that make a big difference. Uh, We talked a little bit about this in prior episodes, but permaculture centers around three main principles. So the three main principles are earth care. That is being a good steward of the land and thinking of the future. It is taking care of Mother Earth because Mother Earth takes care of us. It's people care. It's making sure that there are resources available to everybody. Because the thing is, you can do all of these amazing things, but if they only benefit you, then it's not benefiting permanently the world and that's really the goal here and then it's fair share that's the third principle and that is making sure that you're sharing your surplus and your knowledge with other people to allow continuity more than a garden um, you know permaculture is way more than just gardening it's using resources sustainably it's recycling reusing and upcycling things So we've talked a lot on our podcast about how we repurpose things and how we make it a point to, um, you know, use things in unique and different ways. You know, we recycled some old plumbing pipe and I learned how to weld and (laughs) we turned that into a pallet breaker because breaking apart these pallets was somewhat wasteful, I would say. Because as we were trying to pry them apart and, you know, break them down into usable pieces, because some of our projects were not using the pallets whole, we were finding that in trying to pry the nails out and pry them apart, we were tearing up the wood. We were, we were breaking more boards than we were saving. And we, the goal with the pallets wasn't to make a, a box load of, of splinters out of it, it, was to get good usable wood. And when we were breaking two out of every three boards we pulled off we just had to take a step back and say there's got to be a better way to do this and we found a few creative ways to do it but um, back to the kind of what permaculture means to me that Heather was hitting on it it goes back to the always leave a place better than you found it and when when you look at the world and the things we're doing to it and all that if you can make a positive impact in it by all means do so and that that's kind of my driving force with this and then also a little bit of the leave a legacy if we can inspire other people to do the same um, to kind of push the same effort going forward because 
when I'm, you know, become compost, as we'll, we'll say, what's going to happen to the, the rest of the world? Well, hopefully there's more people out there that will continue this, this movement and keep making the world a better place. That way my grandkids will, you know, still have trees to climb in and things like that. A lot of what we have focused on so far with this podcast has been, you know, the gardening side of things, because that's the part that, you know, a lot of people have asked questions about. And, you know, this whole podcast and our blog, really, it it came about because this is a passion, especially of me, but also of Bob. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we both really enjoy doing. It's something that we like doing together. And... As we've gotten better at it and really expanded our skill set and learned even more ourselves, several of our friends and family members have started coming to us and we're like, hey, how are you able to do all of this, especially with your crazy schedule? And so we got to the point where we were explaining our processes over and over and over and it got tedious. So we thought, you know... We could really just record it it, and when they ask questions, say, hey, go listen to episode blah, blah, blah. And so that's kind of how this got started. But, you know, there there are millions of different facets to permaculture. But the, the main the main overall vibe with permaculture is just sustainability and being good stewards um, of the land, her resources, her people. um, Because, I mean, people are ultimately a resource in a sense, you know? Um, You know, so with commercial agriculture, think of it this way. So a commercially grown tomato. So that tomato is grown to go to a supermarket or grocery store. It is going to require large machinery to be mass produced, mass grown. So you're going to have the production of those tractors and giant pieces of equipment, which are going to be using lots of different kinds of toxic chemicals and fossil fuels to produce. Then you have the fuel to run that enormous tractor and all of the labor that goes into that. Um, A lot of times those are GMO products and they are very much covered in herbicides and pesticides that are designed to kill anything that's not that tomato. And, you know, with the GMO, GMO is genetically modified organisms and those genetically modified things are literally gene sequence spliced so that they are the, the biggest, the baddest, the strongest, the toughest but on the reddest, yeah, the juiciest, um, a nice firm skin, whatever the, the case and traits might be. The thing is with the genetic modification of these plants, they're making them so that they're a nice, bright, shiny red tomato in the store. But then you get it home, you slice it and you take a bite and you're like, where's the tomato flavor? They've made them to be superior for processing, but they taste gross. Oftentimes, they've had hormones added to them to induce flowering, and you know they've been put with ripening agents to force them to ripen faster. They're also modified in a, in a way to make them last longer and look better for more periods of time through the transport, through the, the stocking on the shelves people handling in them and looking at them in the supermarket. The the things that make a sellable tomato from a grocer standpoint are not what make a good tomato from a, a consumer standpoint. And they they by the time you bought the tomato, they've made their money. By the time you taste it, it's too late. And a lot of the flavor aspects of it, they get lost in the shuffle. So uh, some I'm not gonna sit here and and kick the commercial people because that's a a whole different subject but the reasons we like our homegrown produce go far beyond the flavor but that is definitely the first thing you notice is the flavor of these yeah so not only do you have all of those things but then you have the transportation of that tomato so now you've got to have some kind of shipping container for that tomato and it has to be a special shipping container that's not going to smash that tomato because tomatoes are a delicate fruit um, and they are a fruit technically Um, then you've got you know the person that handles picking the tomato you've got the person packing the tomato you have the person loading the tomato onto a truck you have the truck delivering it to the store 
you have the store who then has to, you know, unpack those tomatoes and then you put them out on the shelves. And by the time you get that tomato, how many hundreds of people have squished and poked and prodded that tomato to see if it's their ideal tomato before they make their purchase? So now you've got all of those germs and things from all of these people touching it. And so you, yes, so that is also your cue to wash your food before you eat it. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of things that are going into that tomato making it to your salad plate. Where what we do is we save our tomato seeds year over year. So we grew some incredible tomatoes last year. So we saved those seeds this year because they did fantastic for our soil and our climate. So we saved those seeds. And all that was was us slicing a tomato, literally squishing and sacrificing one super juicy ripe tomato, smeared it on a paper towel, and just let it sit on our counter until it got dry and crusty. Then we flaked off the uh, the bits of tomato and separated out the seeds. And now this year, all we have to do is take those seeds, stick them in some soil, add some water, add some love, add some love <laughs> put in some sunshine, and have a table or somewhere to put them. And then we just have to pick it ourselves. So the only people that are handling our produce are us. Mm-hmm. I mean, occasionally our dogs sniff or lick them. So we still wash our produce. And you still have bugs that are going to pollinate them. So you're still going to have bugs leaving bug droppings on your tomatoes and such. And there are chemicals in the air. We do live in the city. So there's a lot of air pollution because we live in a big city. So there's still a lot of that stuff there, but not on the same scale. That same tomato from a commercially produced area has got so many more resources dumped into it to make it to your table. So... You know, from an earth care standpoint, us making sure that we take care of our produce ourselves eliminates so many streams of waste and so many fossil fuel consumptions. And so, you know, that's a big part of why we do what we do as well. Um, you know, the earth impact of the toxins of all of those those synthetic uh, herbicides and pesticides, the and the fertilizers, and you know, they're you they're not using organic, natural, non GMO fertilizers. They're using broad spectrum synthetic produced massive fertilizer and you know herbicides and pesticides but the earth impact is that you know you've got the toxins the transportation costs the fuel costs the people impact you know by growing it yourself you're getting a healthier more flavorful non-gmo pesticide and herbicide free carbon drawdown inducing vegetable and the fair share or the people impact we grow so many tomatoes that we can absolutely give them away to friends and family we can give them to certain food pantries now not all of them will accept fresh produce because they do have some you know they have to be careful about risks yeah Yeah, there's a liability so not all of them are able to accept fresh produce but we give them away freely when we can and so you know we we do what we can to make a small impact and some ways that you can implement permaculture in an urban setting is you know start a container garden um that just means containers of any sort it doesn't have to be fancy beautiful garden pots that you purchase from a big box store or that are handcrafted by some fancy artisan it can literally be cottage cheese containers with some dwarf sized plants it can be a milk jug that you saw in half and leave with a flap that you throw some dirt in and some seeds and use as a micro greenhouse i've, I've talked about this before but my first container garden that i can remember as a little kid was made out of old hubcaps If it'll hold dirt, you can work with it. Exactly. And so these containers can be things that you're recycling and giving new life to. You can build a raised bed. So, you know, we live in Ohio. Our soil is clay. It is absolute garbage to try to grow in because nothing wants to grow in it. It's such dense soil that the roots from our plants really struggle to dig down and permeate. And because it is clay, it doesn't hold nutrients. It's literally clay that you can turn into bricks. You can literally take our soil. Yeah, you can literally take our soil and, um, you know, get it wet and sift out the the non-clay and form it and bake it and quite literally make bricks out of it. 
So we, you know, our beds are mostly raised beds. Now ours are very moderately raised beds. Our beds are only about three inches to five inches tall. They're not super huge, but what we've done is we have built our soil in those beds using organic compost like we talked about um, in a prior episode and using natural wood that we got from an arborist and natural manures and we use all of these natural things we don't need to use herbicides because we're companion planting and we're planting crops that are you know native and that do well in our climate we're going to be talking about growing to your climate in in an episode coming up very soon We also add perennial foods to our beds, things like Jerusalem artichokes, which will come back year over year, things like Egyptian walking onions. You plant them once and you will have onions in perpetuity because as the Egyptian onion grows, it sets up a long, tall spindle and then it'll get a little bulb on the top of it. And when those bulbs get so heavy that they bend down the the stalk that they grew on, they fall over and plant themselves. And in essence, it walks. So they do travel and, you know, you, you get them kind of spreading a little bit, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. So I don't have to spend resources or burn fossil fuels to go get onion sets. I just let them do their thing and I don't harvest all of them. And so they will do their thing. We have asparagus planted and asparagus takes a little bit of time to get established. Um, It usually takes two to four years before your establish is really or your asparagus is really well established. But at that point, your asparagus will go for 25 or more years. So we'll have fresh asparagus for the rest of our lives at this point. Nature wants to keep living. So if you can mimic nature as closely as possible, it will do its thing and keep going. Yep. We are in the process of building a rain collection system um, to modify what we already have. Uh, we're simply recycling some some large drums that are food grade drums. We are taking our downspouts on our house and routing them into the, the barrel. And then we've got a spigot on the bottom of the barrel and we can hook a hose up to that. And then we can water from the rain we naturally collected from our rooftop. Nature's going to do the watering for us. And the great thing about that, it's not tapping into our water grid. We're not taking water from our commercial system. And and plants like water that comes from the sky better than water that comes from the tap because there's no added chlorine. Chlorine, fluoride. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it does a better job of, of giving our plants exactly what they need. Another thing you can do that's a small thing that can really make a big impact is to make or buy a bird bath or a small pond. Because we think of a bird bath as a cute place to watch little birdies chirp around and splash around and do cute things. And yes, it's great for that. And they they drink that water. But what you don't think about is it's an amazing way for other critters to get something to drink. So the bees, for example. Mm -hmm. Bees need moisture. Um, They need to be able to drink in order to make your honey. They need just like, yeah, to do bee-like things. You know, just like everybody, every living organism needs water pretty much. So, you know, having a bird bath or a small pond is a great way to add visual interest to your garden or small space and add a life source to these, you know, these critters. Another small thing that you can do is to grow herbs in a windowsill. Um, especially things like basil. Basil you can propagate over and over and it over. It makes the house smell so nice. It really does. We we really don't use a lot of chemical um, room fresheners anymore. Not if we can avoid it. Yeah. Um, we do have a bunch of, like, the little wax cubes that um, we had collected over we the years. We're just using them up, though. We haven't purchased mm-hmm. any new ones in a long time. Exactly. Um, because we're trying to eliminate those because those are all made with synthetic um, oils and smells. And they can be toxic. So we're trying to get away from using all of those. But what we have done is we've got plants everywhere in our house and especially the herbs. It's amazing. I know myself, I'll walk by and just gently brush my hand across them and then run over about, (laughs) smell my hand. It smells like basil. And he laughs and teases me. But 
the basil, you know, so I, I talk about propagation, but one thing that irritates me in a lot of different gardening channels is people will use these words, but not explain exactly what it means. And if you're a beginner, you may not know what that means. So to propagate something is to take an existing plant and generate another plant from that parent plant. So with basil, if you snip it just below a, f- a pair of leaves, um, so that'll be a node, um, a pair of leaves where they come together on the stock, it kind of makes like a V shape where they come together. That's a node. So you want to clip just below that and give it just a little bit of a stem underneath there and just put that in a cup of water. We honestly use shot glasses at our house for drinking liquor. Um, but we put little, little sprigs of basil in shot glasses of water and keep the water changed and clean frequently. Pothos, and monstera. Mm-hmm, we grow our pothos, <laughs> monstera, uh, rose rosemary, um, all kinds of things. You name it, we probably put it in a shot glass. Yeah. And so we'll grow those in our windowsill and then plant those out. So last year we had a basil plant that literally became a tree. Mm -hmm. It, it had a main stalk that was, gosh, I don't know, probably two inches. Yeah. Two inches in diameter. And it was every bit of four or five foot tall. It was huge. My favorite was the fennel from two or three years ago. That thing was huge. Yeah. So we had this fennel that got planted in our front ornamental flower bed (laughs) in a place where it had no business being. It was, it was given to me. Somebody thought she had killed it. And I was like, eh, let me let me take a shot at it. I th- I think I can I can bring it back to life. Not only did it come back to life, it grew taller than the the downspouts on the the front of the house. That's probably what twelve foot. Yeah, it was the <laughs> biggest fennel plant I've ever seen because it was growing in a bed. That it was, wanted to live. Yeah, it was covered in hostas, and there were lavender plants and dianthus and all kinds of other things there. And there was this massive fennel plant. But what we did was we took that fennel and we let it go to seed. And then I saved all of the seeds from those seed heads. Now, the cool thing about fennel is that it it's a very strong flavor profile. I won't lie. It's not for everybody because it does have a very much black licorice taste. And it's going to bring wasps to your garden. Know that. Specifically, it brings hoverflies. And that's a good thing because hoverflies are an amazing thing you want in your garden. But like we talked about in our companion planting thing, fennel doesn't really get along well with most vegetables. So the fact that it was in our front garden, yeah, in a plant covered in other flowers and ornamental, you know, plants, it's probably why it did so well is it didn't have anything to kill it and it didn't have anything to kill. But no competition is a good thing sometimes. But it grew huge. We propagated it by saving the seeds. And now I have, gosh, probably four or five ounces of fennel seeds from that one plant. So now I'm planting fennel again this year, but I'm planting it from the seeds of that monster fennel plant that we had from a couple of years ago. And as long as the seeds are stored well, they'll they'll keep for a nice long time. Um So that's a way for us to be sustainable is to seed save and keep those those vegetables in perpetuity. Um, another important thing that we do to, you know, help with our permaculture is that we're putting in pollinator patches. Um, now a lot of the pollinator patches are going to be annual, so you do need to put them back every year, but a lot of the seeds that you get in these pollinator patches can be perennial as well. Pollinator patches are super important because they bring in the natural pollinators. So they're going to bring in your butterflies and your hoverflies and your bumblebees and your honeybees and all all of these things they're going to get your parasitic wasps and you want parasitic wasps mm-hmm. it sounds like a bad scary thing it's not don't be pa- scared not at all parasitic <laughs> wasps are going to go and they're going to lay their eggs inside the head of a hornworm and hornworms are a terrible thing for your garden because they're going to chew up and eat all of your tomatoes and any of your nightshades really but especially tomatoes a lot of people just call them tomato hornworms they're they're big fat green ugly worms and they destroy everything they come in contact with and they're they're fairly easy to get rid of you can go at night with a black light and they glow so they're really easy to find that way kind of fun to hunt yeah so they're kind of fun to hunt um chickens love them so if you save them in a container and then chuck chuck them out in the morning to your ladies they will gladly gladly nibble away on those hornworms But you can also um, make sure that you've got some parasitic wasps in the area, and the parasitic wasps will uh, lay their eggs inside the hornworms' heads, 
And the eggs hatch and eat their brains and they die. So it sounds terrible, but it is the circle of life. And it's a way to do some natural integrated pest management. So these pollinator patches are super important. Not to mention the fact that most of them are beautiful and add visual interest to your gardens. A lot of them smell really nice. Yeah, they smell amazing. Um, You know, you plant milkweed and you're going to attract monarch butterflies. You plant the uh, fennel, you're going to attract all kinds of things. And it does smell good. If you you are not repulsed by licorice, then it does have a very (laughs) strong licorice odor. Our neighbor made a comment. He's like, I don't know what that plant is, but it smells like black jelly beans <laughs> then we really confused him and, and put a whole bunch of sage bushes next to it the following year yeah so then it smelled like thanksgiving and dinner <laughs> mixed with lavender yeah um so there's that um you can also take your surplus and glean it from friends and family or sometimes public land um, so do you, do you even know what gleaning is? Maybe not. So to glean is to ethically remove the surplus from somebody else's harvest. Now ask first. <laughs> yes. It's important to ask first. And I say that because when you go out to a lot of these nature trails and parks and things, you'll find a lot of these, you know, native and wild edibles and you can absolutely eat them however it's important to ask first because some places have programs where they're growing those things with the intentions of using them for food pantries and and shelters a lot of times they'll have a sign out too that says no picking or harvesting or they'll have a guideline to what you are or aren't allowed to harvest out of that park but in any case you can go up to a park ranger official whoever and ask, hey, what can I and can't I take out here? And is there a limit to how much I can take? And they'll be happy to point you in the right direction if they don't know it, or most of them usually have an answer right there. Mm-hmm. Um, another way you could be gleaning is, um, so I have a friend who lives in an area where there is a large-scale farmer's market, uh, market-producing tomato grower near her. And so they grow um, like acres of tomatoes. They go through and they are all determinate tomatoes, which means they grow to a very specific level and height, and they all ripen and grow to the same levels and height. It's not a genetic modification. It's just the way that particular plant is. You have two different types of tomatoes. There are determinate and indeterminate. Indeterminate tomatoes will grow to a random height to be determined by the plant, and a determinate plant will only grow as tall as it's designed to do. They also indeterminate tomatoes will bloom and flower and create fruit randomly and sporadically throughout their growing season. Determinate tomatoes are going to produce their fruit usually within a week of itself. Mm -hmm. So for a market producer, a lot of times those determinate tomatoes are really nice because they know exactly when they're going to be able to harvest. They can schedule everything. Correct. So what they do is they go through and they pick all of their tomatoes and any of their produce that is not deemed pretty or perfect enough for them to take to their market they literally just drop and go to to rot in the fields because then they'll have a bunch of natural next year volunteer tomatoes so uh, my friend reached out to them and said you know hey so you've got all these tomatoes and maybe one's got a blemish on it maybe one's got a little crack or a spot would you be okay with me harvesting and gleaning some of your leftover tomatoes that you're not taking to market? And the farmer was tickled pink. Yeah, please go ahead. It helps to keep the deer out of my field because if there's less food for them, they're, they're less likely to come. And by doing that, it helps, you know, it helps him out. And so she went out there with this, you're going to laugh about this one, Bob. She went out there with her truck and had two children's swimming pools. (laughs) (laughs) And they went with five-gallon buckets, and they just harvested all the tomatoes they could, put them in those, you know, children's swimming pools, took them back to her house, and they went to town with canning them. So they picked off any blemishes that were 
not safe, you know, for a canning because you have to be careful when you're canning that mm-hmm. you're not preserving things that potentially have disease or things like that. But she went to town and she made, you know, pasta sauce and she made her homemade ketchup and canned plenty of diced and sliced tomatoes. Um, if my kids were involved, there would definitely be ketchup. The moment you put those in the waiting pool, the kids would be stomping on them barefoot. It would look like that scene from I Love Lucy where they were making wine, but instead it would be ketchup. Yeah. So she did that. And then once she was finished with all of it, and she she hadn't arranged it with a farmer to be this way, but she took um, several canning jars full of the tomato products that she made and made a little basket and brought them to him as a thank you for letting him, you know, letting her take some of his leftover harvest. She also saved a few of those tomatoes and uh, saved the seeds from them. And so she has now started her own, you know, type of seeds that she knows grows well in her climate because it literally grows a few miles down the road from her in this massive tomato farm. So she doesn't even buy tomatoes anymore because she gets all of them, you know, as the leftovers from this fella. So she doesn't even buy them in the store. She just grows a few of her own and she starts them in succession planting so that she's always got some fresh tomatoes you know, around her own house in the growing seasons that they will grow in. So gleaning is something you can absolutely do. And um, you can also do that with a lot of um, nut farmers, uh, places that do, you know, pecans and almonds and hazelnuts and things. You know, folks get to a point where you're like, if I see one more pecan, I am not going (laughs) to eat it, you know. (laughs) And so they're more than willing to, to give you some of their surplus. And I say, you know, gleaning surplus, and I'm talking about food specifically, but we have a good friend who purchased a duplex apartment building. And in it, it had been taken apart and made into a one-person house, a single-family home. And he was redoing it to be a two-person home, which it originally was. In doing so, he had some enormous pieces of lumber that were 10 or 12 foot long, 20 foot long, two by fours. They were huge. Dimensional two by fours. They were really nice um, two by fours. So um, back in July of this past year, we unfortunately had an incident where the rafters in our garage collapsed. Um, They had not been put up in the best fashion we learned and we didn't realize that. And so as we were sliding some wood on them to store um, to get it out of our way they came crashing down and it was it was a mess our friend was over there um he had been helping us with putting the the wood into the rafters as part of our project and he was like hold on just a minute i actually have some some two by fours that are 20 foot long that i think will work for this and you can fix it and so we gleaned his surplus because he was just going to chop it up and use it for other projects but we needed a 20 foot long two by four and they're crazy expensive to buy and hard to transport Unless you've got a long trailer. And so we were able to glean some of that surplus wood from him and were able to, you know, scavenge that. We had a good friend that had um, a selfie business. So you could go in and pay a fee and take selfies with all of their fancy props and things. backdrops and different rooms and... All sorts of neat stuff. It just didn't take off, unfortunately. Yeah, and it it just didn't work out for him in the location that he had. And he wasn't exactly sure where or if he was going to reopen. So he reached out and said, hey, I heard that you guys like scrap wood. Would you be interested in a whole bunch of stuff? And we're like, "Uh, sure. What do you got? And he's like, well, just come out and take a look. You can have whatever you want. We wound up with a box truck full of drywall and mini studs. They're the 2x3s instead of the 2x4s, but they're great for... Things like garden projects and chicken coops. And even in inside the house, if it's not a load-bearing wall, you can get, get by with a two-by-three. And we also got some pieces of trim, which ironically <laughs> was the exact was the, yep, we, had we had literally just bought some of that trim not even a week prior. But we'll need it for other projects. So we were able to glean all of this surplus lumber that he wasn't going to use. He, he was getting ready to take it to the landfill. And so we saved all of those construction materials that were perfectly usable materials still and kept them out of the landfill. Now, granted, they're currently sitting in our garage, 
They haven't been used yet, but we have used several pieces of them. Oh, yeah, hundreds of them. In fact, the other day, uh, Bob actually made me a double a double closet hanging system because our, our house was built in 1885. Closets were an afterthought. Yeah, they didn't have closets in the 1800s because most people only had two or three outfits. So if anything, you had a wardrobe mm-hmm. that would hold your two or three outfits that you owned and two or three outfits that your husband owned. And so closets weren't a thing. And so our, our closet was built after the fact, and it's very, very, very small because the folks that had our house that put the closets in... They did the best they could they, with what they had. They did the best they could <laughs> with what they have, but they had a very large family. And so when you have 10 children in the Great Depression you don't have a lot of clothes for each child. So they didn't need massive closets. So again, our closets are really tiny. So, you know, it's it's 2023 and I have a few more clothing items than just three outfits. And so Bob decided <laughs> Bob decided that uh, he would build me a, a new double barred closet um, thing for my clothes. And we didn't have to go to the store because we literally repurposed a hunk of pipe that he found and he repurposed some of those pieces of wood so instead of going to the store and buying things we again were able to reuse what we had and scrap screws from a leftover deck project yeah we're still using some of those scrap screws so we did a a deck project for a friend where we built them a a large two-story deck on their back of her house and so these were screws that were left over and she's not at a point where she's going to need or use those screws so she said we could have them and so we did and we have also as well as all the lumber we reclaimed from that yep that's what i was gonna say we have also taken down her old deck in order to make room for the new one and the deck was built in the 70s and it was treated lumber back in the 70s but it had seen better days and so that's why we were replacing it and so we took that wood and cut it down and we used it for all kinds of projects Now, there was a lot of pieces that were very rotten, and so those pieces became firewood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were some pieces, though, that weren't so bad at all. We were able to sand them down or power wash them and use them for some other things. But, again, that was a bunch of material that was saved from going into the landfill. I think Um, the the, um, bottom of the main compost bin is part of her deck. mm -hmm. We've got the guards for the shovels. Yeah, um, one of the things that I'm going to be working on this year, um, we're going to be making some beeswax food wraps. So what those are, you take um, some squares of fabric and you're just going to use a plain cotton fabric and you're going to use some pinking shears to cut the edges um, so that you have, you know, whatever shape and size that you want. And the edges then are, are used pinking shears. So they're going to be serrated in essence. Is the best way I can explain it. Zigzag. <laughs> and then you're going to take some beeswax and melt it down just in a bowl. Uh, we can use a double boiler where you put boiling water in a bowl and you float another bowl empty on top of that. Put your beeswax in there. It melts. You soak your fabric in that beeswax and then hold it over the bowl to let the surplus drip out. And then you just stick it to the edge of the table and let it hang flat and dry. So that beeswax binds with the fiber of the cotton fabric and it creates a reusable cling wrap. So instead of having to buy saran wrap, which is plastic that you then throw away, you make these beeswax wraps and you can use them for everything that you would use saran wrap for. And then you can wash them. Um, You don't use a washing machine, but you can wash them by hand with some soap and water to keep them clean. And you can reuse them over and over and over. And if they start to not seal so well, you simply add a little bit more beeswax. You just recoat them. And it's a way to reuse things in perpetuity. Now, you can go to the fabric store and buy fabric. That's great and fine and well. Or you can just take some old sheets that you're not using anymore. And we happen to have quite a few of those because we used to have a queen-size bed. And we recently upgraded to a king-size bed. With that being said, we no longer need five or six sets of queen-size sheets. Some of them were given away, but some of them have rips from the dogs and things like that. And it's like, yeah, you don't want our old ripped-up sheets. Right. And so the ones that are ripped, we're just going to cut up and and use to make some of these... these wax wraps yeah so that something like that is something again very simple and easy to use it's small things that you can do to be a good steward of the land 
you know throwing something away exactly so part of the things with permaculture you know you're, you're trying to bring your cultivated area as close to a natural area as you can so you're going to want to mimic what nature does so in a forest for example the trees fall they hit the ground they lay there the fungus comes in and starts to munch away on it and deteriorate it. It's going to decompose it. You've got then all of that soft, fertile ground that's full of nice nutrients and things. And as the trees drop some seeds and nuts, those things are going to start sprouting up and they're going to grow. And that's how the the forest perpetuates itself. Well, it works so well in these forests. Look at how tall and strong and great these forest trees are growing. Why wouldn't we mimic that? And instead, you know, instead of commercially synthesizing those things, why wouldn't we go back to nature and do what nature does best? You know, the planet's been around for since the beginning of time and it's figured out a way to live on its own. But we as humans are kind of we well, always think we can do better. We we always think we can do better than nature, but you know, I I really feel like going back to nature is super important. You know, so we talked a lot about the earth care, the people care, you know, making resources available to everyone. That's part of why I do what I do. You know, here I am on this podcast, you know, we we share our information with everybody. It's important to share your knowledge with everybody because really Knowledge is the most valuable resource on your farm. Um, without knowledge, you have nothing. And knowledge is one thing that can never be taken away. You can have a really crummy harvest. You know, last year, I absolutely murdered my eggplants. They were crispy crittered. They died. They looked terrible. They shriveled up. They were awful. But now I know what I did wrong. So that death and destruction and chaos, what I did to that poor eggplant that did not deserve it. <laughs> that is going to be a learning experience and I know what I did wrong and I'm fixing it this year that's knowledge now that I will have with me forever you know don't don't stick an eggplant in a container and then forget about it we also learned never to leave diatomaceous earth around the dogs <laughs> yeah uh, diatomaceous earth is a, a great option for um, a, a natural pest prevention um so it's great to sprinkle around your garden to get rid of certain pests um i have learned now some of the reasons why i should not use diatomaceous earth in the garden because it can absolutely hurt beneficial insects so won't be doing that anyway but we had gotten a big bag of it we were going to try our luck at it because we i've talked about my cabbage moth problem i I will probably harp on that forever because i was so angry at those darn cabbage moths but um we got a huge bag of diatomaceous earth and we had gotten called out on the road. Um, like I said, we work on jet engines and so we travel all over the country working on these airplanes everywhere. While we're gone, our roommate gets a hold of us and says, so the dogs did a thing. <laughs> like what? And she sends us a video. I, I don't know how to describe to you other than it looked like a bomb of white powder exploded in our house. They got a hold of the bag and they drug it from one side to the other, shaking their head from side to side. They rolled in it. They had a tug of war. Yeah, it was terrible. It was everywhere. And diatomaceous earth, it's not easy to clean up because it's tiny, itty bitty, crushed up little baby crustaceans, uh, diatoms actually. And yeah, it's, uh, we're still finding places that has diatomaceous earth that we had missed when we cleaned because our roommate was sweet and kind and saved some of it in a Ziploc bag for us so that we could still use it. Yeah, it was, it was food grade and you know, all the things. And unfortunately it was put in a, in a windowsill where the dogs could get it and they're like hey i remember this this was fun and so they did it again and so we learned a valuable lesson Sometimes we have to learn lessons twice yeah so we learned a lesson that day uh you know people care in that case was 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 not killing our dog um and not killing each other as we were absolutely just beside ourselves angry scrubbing it for the second time our poor roommate is a saint that woman has had to clean up so many crazy mm. canine fiascos and 
Speaking of our roommate, you know, fair share. So from April to November, um, Tammy, she did not buy anything but some ranch dressing from April to November because she exclusively ate fruits and vegetables from our garden. And she looks the healthiest she has. I've known her since high school. And I would say she looks the healthiest she has since high school. Mm-hmm. Now, we got married in July of last year, July of 2022. Mm-hmm. And so we had we made all of our own food for the wedding, and we had a ton of leftover chicken and shredded pork. And so we froze those in food saver bags using our vacuum sealer into about one pound to two pound packages. Some of them smaller, some of them yeah. Smaller. yeah. And so we had some of those. So she did have meat. Um, I mean, she didn't go completely vegetarian here, but... It was very, very produce-based diet. Yeah, it was primarily, um, you know, salads made with all of the the produce that we grew. And, you know, then most of this year, we have been eating the tomatoes that we were able to can. Uh, We just had some of the green beans that I canned not too long ago. We had friends over, and I had to break into one of the jars and We've still got bloody mary mix mm-hmm. we made a whole bunch of bloody mary mix and you know we shared that we had a friend that had a birthday back in october and you know he wanted to have a bloody mary bar and so we brought homemade bloody mary mix and shared it with the group and you know it's giving a fair share of surplus to allow um continuity of those things um a friend of mine has a business and got a hold of some extra seeds that were given to him uh, he paid nothing for them. They were leftover seeds from a, a program that program. was a community. Yeah, it was a community outreach program that he attended, and it was not as well attended as they anticipated. So there were tons of leftover seeds. And so we had gone over and were visiting him, and he was like, hey, do you like kohlrabi? Yes. Uh, yes, please. And he's like, you want some? We're like, sure. And he handed me like 20 packets of kohlrabi seeds. So we're going to be eating a lot of kohlrabi this year. Because he gave us a fair share. He traded and and made sure that we had, you know, those kohlrabi seeds. And so those, I mean, I, I've talked about, you know, what is permaculture, and I believe it was episode two, but I gave a very super high-level high overview. Yeah. But I've noticed as I tell people about what we do and, and what our podcast is about, they really don't understand. They're like, oh, so it's a gardening thing. Mm. Well... I mean, it is, but it's so much more than that. It's we're adding lights to our fence posts and they're they're solar powered. I don't want to have to use the the power grid. And I still want a windmill. We're, yeah, we're going to we're going to be adding a windmill <laughs> to our property because if I don't, poor Bob is going to to throw a tantrum. We do not have a turbine of our own. <laughs> That's just wrong. Yeah. Um so you know, we're going to be working on getting a, a wind turbine to, you know, a windmill to generate some of our electricity. And we recycle. I mean, we really recycle a lot of things. And not always just in the traditional stick it in the, you know, the recycling bin and, t- and you know, have it hauled off to recycle. We reuse upcycle. It. We reuse. I mean, I know you can't see me right now, but I assure you that the jeans I'm wearing right now are very, very, very ripped and holy. But the thing is, they still cover me and they're comfortable. I'm going to use these things until they literally are not safe to wear in public anymore because I don't believe in replacing things just for the sake of fashion or aesthetics. If it's functional, I'm going to use it. Guys, I'm going to chime in there. All ladies have a double standard. If we wear ripped, holy stuff that we say is comfortable, they sneak behind us and throw it out. She repurposes it, but still, my comfy jeans that I like to keep around, they're comfy. They look terrible. They're gone. Yeah, that happens. I'm just saying, he's wearing a flannel shirt right now that's got a lot of holes in it's, it. It's well-loved. It is a very well-loved shirt. But it doesn't look bad. And the, the whole ripped-up look, is the distressed look, is is back in in fashion, you know? A lot of times I'll purchase this was, things... This is society again. <laughs> I will purchase a lot of things from thrift stores. And even if they don't fit quite right, a lot of times I will modify them to make them what I need. 
Um, you know, we, we do a lot of that upcycling and repurposing of things. You're going to find a lot of things around our house. That's like, that's not what that's supposed to be used for. No, it's, it's definitely not. Um, in fact, actually our seed starting setup is 100% not designed to be a seed starting setup, but we designed it to become a seed starting setup. We use six foot pieces of closet made shelving. Yeah. And we hung them from some chain, and it's we used lamp chain, I yeah, it's lamp chain, uh, heavy lamp chain at that. It's mm-hmm. it holds up to seventy five pounds, and then we used carabiners or carabiners um, so that you can adjust the height of the Just the seedlings by lengths in the chain, so that it's easy to count and know exactly that they're level. And it doesn't take up a footprint underneath it, so we have a table set up underneath it that's a folding table. It's suspended by plant hangers. Yeah, and it's it's suspended by outdoor plant hangers that are stuck on the studs in the wall. Yeah. And then, you know, so we've repurposed that stuff and turned it into something that it's not originally designed for, but it works great for us. The creativity side of that, that's a lot of fun, too. Mm-hmm. taking something going, okay, what do I need? What do I have? How can I make that do that? Our worm composting bin is an old cooler. Mm-hmm. It literally was a cooler that does not fit our needs anymore. We have a bigger cooler a that we use. one sitting right next to us in the hotel room. Yeah, and we use it for everything, and so we don't need that other cooler anymore. So rather than just throwing it out, we repurposed it into a worm bin, and so now we're using it to compost food scraps and feed our worms. Um, so those are some great examples of some of the things that we've done to reuse, reduce, and recycle. Um, permaculture isn't just gardening. It, it really is a way of living. Um, some of my friends tell me, oh, so you're one of those hippie, crunchy granola moms. No, but kind of. <laughs> and, you know, I just want to leave this planet a little better than where I found it. And if I can take that knowledge and that passion that I have for that, and I can spread it to all of you, my listeners, and I can spread it to my son and our grandkids and, you know, my stepchildren. And if I can teach them and they do the same, then we have built a better legacy than I could ever have hoped for. Leaving the world a better place for our grandkids. Exactly. And, you know, one of my one of my favorite podcasters is Emma with uh, Misfit Gardening. She's got the um, Homesteading and Gardening in the Suburbs podcast. And one of the things that she says regularly that I love and I try to live by is use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. And that's something we pretty much live by Mm -hmm. i mean hers rhymes better and she says it much better (laughs) than i do but it's a great principle and it it very much summarizes exactly what we feel Mm -hmm. so that's this week's episode um all about you know the the nitty-gritties of permaculture um a couple resources for you there is a book called permaculture a designer's manual it's by uh bill mollison it's something that i definitely would recommend you checking out and um you know if you haven't had a chance to to read up much on permaculture check out our website it's hogs and hens dayton.com and that's d-a-y-t-o-n.com um we live in dayton ohio so hogs and hens dayton is is who we are um there's lots of resources there and there are more episodes or more i'm sorry more blog posts coming more articles coming there you can also find us on facebook at hogs and hens urban farm we would love to have you interact with us there Tell us some of the things that you're doing to make the earth a better place. All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in and we will talk to you soon. Stay tuned because there are some changes coming to this podcast. We've been pretty excited about our weekly episodes, but I believe we're going to be moving to a twice a week recording schedule. Um, So we're going to be episoding (laughs) on Wednesdays and Saturdays going forward. You should see content on both Wednesdays and Saturdays. And so there's that to look forward to. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope your garden grows great. (music) Thank <music> you.